All right, this evening uh, we will be back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, very quickly, uh, since we have some ground to cover tonight, uh, just as a reminder, we are in the midst of a long section of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 26, uh, which we are using as um, a an outline for an extended commentary on the Decalogue, an extended commentary on the Ten Commandments. And we're making the case here that in chapters 6 <clears throat> through 11 is the commentary, uh, a pretty lengthy commentary, on the first commandment. And of course, the first commandment was found back in Deuteronomy chapter 5 or 7, where the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. And we will see that motif arise again this evening as we uh, finish up through Deuteronomy chapter 11. So I'm going to pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. Hear, O Israel, you're crossing over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out <coughs> and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. So very quickly um, here in uh, chapter 9, verse 3, if you, if you look there, uh, it's very clear, again, as we saw last time we were together, that the reason why the Israelites uh, will have success in the land of Canaan, in the conquest of Canaan, and that they will destroy nations that are larger and stronger than they is because first God will destroy them and he will subdue them before the Israelites. You can see that in verse three. So it's always God working before his people do work. And, and that is a, a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, you can see that in both the Old and New Testaments. And then, of course, we want to hover <clears throat> over uh, verses four through six and uh, God says multiple times here, verse 4, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, quote, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, end quote. And he says that three times. He says that in verse 4. He says that at the beginning of verse 5. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart, Israel. And in verse 6, he says it again. No, then it is not because of your righteousness, that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. <clears throat> so three times in these three verses, God, through Moses, is telling the Israelites it is not because of their righteousness that they are getting this land. And we see that the basis for them receiving this land is twofold. The first one uh, in verses 4 uh, and 
uh, yes, in 4 and 5, is because of the wickedness of the nations that were there. So God, uh, in his patience, he has waited 400 years for the sins of these Canaanite peoples to add up uh, before he chooses to bring Israel across the Jordan River under the leadership of <coughs> Joshua to uh, bring judgment down on these nations. Um, so that's the first reason, because of the wickedness of these nations. And then the second reason you can see at the end of verse 5, in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can see the beginnings of that oath even all the way back as far as Genesis 15 and, and even in Genesis uh, 12 verses 1 to 3 when God promises <clears throat> Abram back in Genesis 12 uh, a land that he had not even yet seen. And so God is going to be faithful, of course, to his promises. Uh, and he's reminding the Israelites that his faithfulness is the basis uh, for them going in and possessing the land, certainly not their uprightness. And at the end of verse 6, you can see it says, for you are a stubborn people. Uh, the word stubborn there literally means stiff-necked people. Uh, that same terminology is also used in verse 13, uh, stubborn and literally speaking, stiff-necked. So I'm not going to read uh, the rest of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Uh, just hit the highlights because in essence, the rest of Deuteronomy chapter 9 is a an extended commentary on this idea that the Israelites are a stubborn people. And so in verse 7, Moses sets up the rest of the discussion by saying, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. And then he will work through some, <coughs> some of, the, <coughs> excuse me, some of the details of that uh, stubbornness in the rest of chapter 9. So in, in uh, verse 9, Moses says he goes up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God, verse 10. And in verse 11, at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave Moses the two tablets of stone. And he says in verse 12, arise, go down from here quickly for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. And so all of this is happening in Exodus chapter 32. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have seen this people, verse 13, and it indeed is a stiff-necked people. And then God threatens to blot them out in verse 14. And you can read about that back in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. So Moses says he came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire. And verse 16, Moses saw that the Israelites had indeed sinned and they had made for themselves a molten calf. And then in verse 17, Moses recounts how he smashed the two tablets that were given to him by God before the eyes of the Israelites. And then in verse 18, he fell down before the Lord and um, he pleaded for Moses or for the Israelites. And he says, even in verse nine, he says, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you, Israelites, in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time. And you can see the intercessory prayer uh, that Moses prayed back in Exodus chapter 32. And in verse 20, the Lord was even angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. And Moses at that time, it seems, even interceded for his brother Aaron, who would become the great high priest of Israel. And then in verse 21, Moses talks about how he took that calf which they had made and he burned it with fire and crushed it. 
and then he put it in the brook that came down from the mountain. And that you can see that in verse 21. And again, that's recounted back in Exodus chapter 32. In um, Deuteronomy 9, verse 22, uh, there are the mention of three events, actually, at Taborah and at Massa and at Kibroth Hata'ava. And you can see the uh, this is sort of conflating uh, some different stories uh, where the Israelites were stubborn <coughs> and grumbling against the Lord. You can read about those in Numbers 11 and Exodus 17. Verse 23, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea saying, go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Of course, when the spies went into the land and 10 of the 12 spies, not including Joshua and Caleb, gave a bad report. And in verse 24, a restatement, Moses says to Israel, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. In verse 25, where Moses says, so I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and nights, that's actually picking up from verse 18. Verse 18 begins with, and I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. So he picks up that story from Exodus chapter 32. And he did that, of course, in verse 25, because the Lord had said, he would destroy you. In verse 26, and I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy this people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And so we see the intercessory prayer of Moses from Exodus 32, verse 27. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at their wickedness or their sin. And then this really important verse, verse 28, otherwise the land from which you brought us may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he has promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. And so we remember and we studied at that time in Exodus 32 and also in Numbers chapter 14, that when Moses was praying as the intercessor between God and Israel. He's appealing to God's greatness. He's appealing to God's name and his glory and saying, God, you can do this. You can bring this people in. And we certainly don't want the Egyptians or any other Gentile people groups to besmirch your name and say that you were not able to bring this people into the land that you had promised them, even though you brought them out of slavery in Egypt with a great and strong arm. And so Moses appeals to God's power and God's faithfulness in those intercessory prayers. And so he recounts those prayers here at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 9. He picks up in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 1 uh, as recounting events that you can read about in Exodus chapter 34, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. At that time, the Lord said to me, cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he, God, wrote on the tablets like the former writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire. On the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made, and there they are as the Lord commanded me. 
So here we see Moses again recounting events from Exodus 34 and the recreation of the two tablets of stone upon which were printed by the finger of God, the Ten Commandments. There's a parenthetical uh, here beginning in verse 6 uh, through 9. Now the sons of Israel set out from Beeroth, Benet-Jakon to Moseroth. Then Aaron died, and there he was buried, and Eleazar his son ministered as priest in his place. From there they set out to Gudgadah, and from Gudgadah to Jotbathah, a land of brooks of water. At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to serve him and to bless in his name until this day. Therefore Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. And so the verses 8 and 9 specifically of this parenthetical statement recount events that we read and studied uh, back in Numbers chapter 3, uh, where the Lord chose the entire tribe uh, of Levi to carry uh, not just the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, but but also the rest of the tabernacle and all of its utensils and furniture and tents. And if you remember, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi uh, as a redemption price for all of the firstborn of Israel, since in the final plague, the tenth plague in Exodus, all of the firstborn of Egypt were actually destroyed. And so God um, God had demanded the firstborn of Israel, and then in Numbers chapter 3, chose to take the, the entire tribe of Levi in, in, in the place of the firstborn Israelites. And in verse 9, uh, there's a reminder here that Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. And so what we will see, Lord willing, when we get to the book of Joshua, uh, chapters 13 and following, when the land of Canaan is divided between the tribes of Israel, it will be divided into 12 tribes, but Levi will not be included. Uh, at that time, there will be two tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, they will each get a parcel of land, and so that's how we get 12, and the Levites will not get an inheritance in the land of Canaan, for the Lord Yahweh, the Lord their God, is his inheritance, and they have been set apart for him. We pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 10, with the events of Exodus chapter <clears throat> 34. Moses says this, I, moreover, stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, <coughs> the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So I just want to, to pause here. And again, we see this, this um, in verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10. We see what is required of Israel. And we see specifically the first and greatest commandment there at the, the, the end of verse 12 to, to love God and to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. And, and Jesus uh, talks about this first and greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, 
verse 37, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 13, to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. So again, the Lord God has chosen the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and their descendants to receive the land of Canaan. But what is required once they go into the land of Canaan is obedience to his commands. And again, just as an overarching comment, remember, we're in the section of Deuteronomy between chapters 6 and 26, where we are getting this extended commentary on the commandments themselves. So the, the theme that's underrunning all of this discussion is God has put down his law. He has given his law to his people, Israel, and he expects them and commands them to keep it that they might live long in the land. And we will return to that motif in Deuteronomy chapter 11 in just a few moments. And so, um, again, a reminder, verse 15, on your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is <clears throat> this day. And so we see God's electing grace, right? A reminder that it's not because of the Israelites' righteousness that they will inherit the land, but because, because God set his love on the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 16. Moses still speaking to the Israelites. Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. All right, so I'm going to skip over verse 16 for now. We will come back to that at the end. But uh, I want to pick up in verse 17. You see that the Lord your God is God of God and the Lord of Lords. And, and I hope what's ringing uh, in your mind is the text in the New Testament where Jesus himself is declared to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, so this is an incredible statement uh, about the Godness of God. He does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And so we see in this uh, that he is a just God. He is a merciful God at the same time. And it is the those who are of lowest estate in our midst uh, that he cares for. And so the exhortation is for us to also care for these people. You can see in verse 19, the exhortation to Israel to show their love for the alien as a reminder they were aliens in the land of Egypt. Verse 21, he, God, is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eye have seen. And then in verse 22, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And this is clearly a reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, where God makes this incredible promise to Abram 
at the time. He takes Abram outside of his tent and he tells him to look up at the stars and number them if he can, for such your descendants will be. And so we see God uh, through Moses clearly making the appeal to the Israelites that these promises are being fulfilled in their midst on the east side of the Jordan River at the cusp of the conquest of Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge and his statutes, his ordinances and his commandments. And know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm and his signs and his works, which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and to all his land. And what he did to Egypt's army, to its horses and its chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing, pursuing you, and the Lord completely destroyed them. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. But your own eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord, which he did. So I want to stop there and just note that, in verse 2, he says, And know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God. And then there's an interlude that goes up to verse 7. But your own eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord, which he did. And so Moses is making this appeal to this very generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt. You remember, they were not adults. This generation was not the generation of adults that came out of Egypt for that generation fell in the wilderness. But these are the children who were alive, many of them who came out of Egypt, right? And so this is the second generation of Israelites. And Moses is making the case that all of these things that are outlined in verses three through six are the very things that this generation of Israelites has seen with their own eyes. And he's making this point because in verse 8, he's going to give them another word of exhortation. Because you have seen all these things with your own eyes, the great work of the Lord, which he did. Verse 8, you shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, so that you may prolong your days on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. And I'm actually going to come back to those uh, verses at the end as well as we talk about the land of Canaan in um, some specifics. Verse 13, and it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. We see there again, the first and greatest commandment that Jesus articulates in Matthew 22, verse 14, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Verse 16, beware lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away 
and serve other gods and worship them. And in verse 16, of course, we can see the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And you can see that here in verse 16. Verse 17, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall teach them to your sons talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. And of course, in verses 18 through 21, we hear echoes of the Shema, which we studied uh, two sessions ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this idea of teaching and keeping, binding them as a sign on your hand and on their forehead. And so that was, uh, we studied that a couple of chapters ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4 and following. Picking up in verse 22, for if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I'm commanding you to do it, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Your border shall be from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the Western Sea. And I would just note here that uh, the, the boundaries of that land uh, are repeated uh, from Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, and that great uh, covenant that God made with Abram back in Genesis chapter 15, the same boundaries here in Deuteronomy eleven twenty-four, Picking up in verse 25, there shall be no man be able to stand before you. The Lord your God shall lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot as he has spoken to you. Verse 26, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I'm commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I'm commanding you today by following other gods, which you have not known. And again, a statement of the first, uh, first commandment there, to not have any other gods before Yahweh. Verse 29, and it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way toward the sunset in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, besides the oak, beside the oaks of Moreh? For you are about to cross the Jordan to go and to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and live in it. And you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you today. <clears throat> and so this is a little bit of foreshadowing that the blessings will stand on Mount Gerizim. I'm in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 11. And the cursings will stand on Mount Ebal. And that will actually take place uh, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So once we get through Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 26, which are the extended commentary on the Decalogue, then immediately following that, we will see the blessings and the cursings in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So once the law is given, then we will have two extended chapters on the blessings for obedience and the cursings for disobedience. And so that is where we are headed 
later in the book of Deuteronomy. And we can see in verses 26 through the end of the chapter, again in Deuteronomy chapter 11, this is a clear statement of a covenant of works. And remember, a covenant of works is characterized by the idea, do this and live. And so again, with obedience comes blessing, with disobedience comes cursing. This is clearly a statement of the covenant of works between God and Israel. All right, I want to circle around to finish up with a couple of things. The first thing I want to um, revisit uh, goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. And so um, this this um, statement from Moses, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. So <clears throat> this idea, um, this idea that circumcision, right, is more than just the putting away of a piece of flesh. Clearly, this goes back to Genesis chapter 17 and the covenant of circumcision with uh, Abraham at that time. Uh, you can go back and listen uh, to, to that uh, session that we had in Genesis chapter 17. And I talked at that time about what circumcision points to under the new covenant uh, being uh, regeneration that is being born again by the Spirit of God. But what we see here is that, in at least in Moses' mind, right, as he looks back on the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, he sees it as more uh, than merely putting off of a piece of flesh. But he realizes, and he's pointing out to us <clears throat> that, that circumcision is more than physical, that there's a portion of our hearts that needs to be cut away as well. And so if you would, please turn with me to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul <coughs> picks up on this very motif, Romans chapter 2. <coughs> of course, as you likely know, in Romans 2, Romans 1, rather, Paul was addressing the Gentiles in all of their uh, many and various ways that they were sinning and being an affront to the one true God of the universe. In Romans chapter 2, Paul now is turning his sights uh, to the Jews of his day. I want to pick up in Romans 2 verse 23. Paul is here speaking to the Jews in the Roman church. Romans 2 beginning in verse 23. You who boast in the law, you see he's speaking to Jews, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And that's a quotation from Ezekiel 36. Verse 25, Paul writes this, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You are no longer, I'm interjecting, you are no longer the people of God if you break the law. And that is exactly what we've been seeing in the Pentateuch over and over and over again. Those who disobey the law come under the curse. They are no longer God's people. And that's exactly what's being stated here in verse 25. <clears throat> if you 
excuse me, if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Verse 26, if therefore the uncircumcised man, that is essentially the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Rhetorical question. Answer, yes. The keeper of the law will judge the transgressor of the law. Verse 28. For he, this is so important. Verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew <clears throat> who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, that is a true Israelite, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. This is the very thing here in Romans 2 that the Apostle Paul is picking up that we saw all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, where Moses calls on Israel to circumcise then their hearts and stiffen their necks no more. In Galatians 6, Paul will also write, for circumcision and uncircumcision, they don't even count. They don't even count. What counts is obedience to the commands. And this motif we will see again and again through the scriptures. And so we can tie Deuteronomy 10, 16 into Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, verse 29. So important to understand and sets up the further discussion that Paul provides in Romans chapters 9 through 11. One final <clears throat> comment, if you would go back to Deuteronomy 11 again, I want to talk a little bit <clears throat> about the land of Canaan. So as I was studying for this evening, I was reading commentaries and, and uh, thinking and, and praying and, and uh, to be quite honest, even doing some internet searches um, uh, for why the Lord, Yahweh, cares so much for this land of Canaan. Um, it's, it's a very interesting study, uh, if for no other reason. Um, there is a dearth or a shortage uh, of information that addresses this. And so I just want to make a few comments about um, why I think the Lord himself has his eyes set on Canaan from the beginning, even to the end of the year, when you see in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 12. Clearly, God is singing the praises of the land of Canaan itself in Deuteronomy chapter 11, he is comparing it to the land of Egypt. And uh, the comparison is basically Egypt is a very flat land and uh, it has to wait uh, for the waters of the Nile to overflow in order for it to be irrigated and to provide uh, the crops and, and everything that is needed uh, to keep their civilization going. And of course, the land of Canaan is very different from that. Um, you could see in verse 10, for example, for the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. Okay, But the land into which, verse 11, the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys. 
drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. And as I was thinking about this, I began to look at a map <clears throat> of the ancient Near East. Um, and so I, I, uh, I'm attempting to uh, share my screen with you. And so this is just one of many maps um, that uh, you might be able to pull up. And so it shows the northeastern region of the continent of Africa. And you can see uh, modern day Saudi Arabia down here at the bottom middle. And then it goes into the ancient Near East. Babylon would be down in here by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And then this map, of course, begins to stretch up on the Northwest into Europe. And it just so happens that this particular map, the yellow, uh, shows uh, the empire of Alexander the Great. Um, that's not as important for our particular discussion. But but I want to focus you, if it, I'm sure you're aware that here on the Eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea is exactly where the land of Canaan is. And it turns out that <clears throat> the land of Canaan was um, essentially the sole trade route between Asia in the east and Europe in the west and Africa in the south. When there were, were and that's why over the course of history, this land of Canaan on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea uh, was changing hands so often as the um, major empires in history uh, rose and fell. So when you think about the Assyrian Empire, uh, the Egyptians before the Assyrians, and then, of course, the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians, and subsequently the Greeks, and then subsequently, of course, the Romans, this land right here was an extremely valuable piece of land because through this land was where all of the trade was going between Africa and Europe and Asia. And so what's the point? The point is this. It may be, in my mind at least, I give this for your consideration, it may be that God sees this land as so incredibly valuable and wanting to give it to his chosen and beloved people so that all of the peoples of the world, as they traveled the world and carried goods throughout the world, they would be forced to travel through this great land that God had prepared for his people so that they would come in and, and most notably uh, pass through Jerusalem where God's temple was, that they would get a taste of what the true worship of the one true God of the universe was. And so God has strategically placed this land here on the east side of the Mediterranean River. And of course, we had Tyre and Sidon, which is on the left coast here of the land of Canaan, where there would be so much shipment coming from Europe and northern Africa. And then on the east side of the land of Canaan, there's the Arabian Desert, and there were no trade routes through the Arabian Desert. And so God is funneling all of these Gentile peoples from Asia and from Europe and from Egypt through this one extremely small tract of land so that as they passed by that land, they would see the worship of the one true God. Of course, as we know, the Israelites never lived up to that. And so the Israelites themselves were jettisoned out of that land on multiple occasions 
and of course finally jettisoned out of that land and the old covenant of Moses was replaced with the new covenant of Jesus Christ so that people would no longer have to come to a place to see the worship of the one true God, but under the terms of the new covenant, we are commanded in the great commission not to tell people to come and see, but we are commanded to go and tell. And so that change happened uh, and the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And so the land of Canaan is no longer God's land, but in Romans 4, we know that Abraham is the inheritor. Abraham and his descendants are the inheritors of the world. So um, I leave you with the Great Commission uh, from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I just wanted to read uh, uh, one final word of exhortation from the great commentator, Matthew Henry, this evening. This is from his commentary on Deuteronomy chapter 9. Now let them lay all this together, and it will appear that whatever favor God should hereafter show them in subduing their enemies and putting them in possession of the land of Canaan, it was not for their righteousness. It is good for us often to remember against ourselves with sorrow and shame our former sins and to review the records conscience keeps of them that we may see how much we are indebted to free grace and may humbly own that we never merited at God's hand anything but wrath and the curse. We are not more than recipients of grace and mercy. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters.